You know you're jonesing for tofu. Well, we got a whole plate full for you here tonight on Vegan Radio. Got high technology today, boys. Yes, we've got girls. it all today. Boys and girls. High tech, low tech. I like to think of you as a woman. <laughs> and no tech. Or just one of the boys. We'll be employing the technology of nature. Which technology? That would be the technology of oh, I don't know, brain chemistry to uh, get all this information out to the world. I have the hiccups. The technician. <laughs> We're going to be using, uh, you know, our immune systems to beat back all the lies. <laughs> wow. That's right. It's going to be know some show today. About. Some people would call I... this no tech or low tech. <laughs> it's the highest tech there is. I don't know what either of you guys are talking about. <laughs> I don't know. I call it my fro tech. So today's show, we have uh, Stuart Rose, vegetarian author of The Vegetarian Solution. Improve your health and the world you live in. And we also have Dr. Michael Greger from the Humane Society That's to right. talk about the meat recall and the undercover video that spawned it. Mm-hmm. Yep, he's going to give us all the lowdown on uh, what went down in Washington uh, besides the cows. Uh, the cows went down in Chino, California. Uh, That's right. But they're going down everywhere. You know, what's really funny about this whole um, story is that you know, for years I've been seeing this footage of downed cows being moved around by forklifts and electrically prodded and things. And um, now it's just coming into the this one video somehow seemed to. Dude, it doesn't exist until the mass media admit that it exists. Yeah. And even then, it might not. You don't know. In this postmodern world, it might all just be whatever. And also, it's just. Um you know, it's only how it's affecting our food supply. It has nothing to do with care or compassion for the animals themselves. It's just like, oh, dragging them through their feces, their own feces, then will affect our food supply. Well, I'll just remember who the dialogue we're, we're getting from uh, mostly is uh, the USDA and uh, the meat industry. United States dumbasses. <laughs> hey, whoa! some people in the USDA are pretty cool. They just don't have any power. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then there's, uh, well, it, a lot of it ended up in the school lunch program, yes, which is, is also, you know, if you do anything to the children. That's right. <laughs> oh, the children. Hey, the children are our future. Um, I believe that. Yes, it's true. And, uh, you know, so we're going to hit Michael. We're going we're gonna to hit him with some hard questions today. We want to know, you know. The same things the the big media is asking. Do you guys want to read any of those background stories for our listeners? Oh yeah, I'll pull one out. Perhaps I'm in a reading. <laughs> I'm in a reedy mood. Are you? I was gonna say I'm not. Yeah. The more I read this stuff, the more impassioned and inflamed I get. Oh, read, inflamed. Read on. That's right. I've I got hope a, you don't spontaneously combust. This is totally chapping me, man. Chapping. Chapping and chafing. Need some chapstick. Uh, Chappy. So this all started with this video. You see. Uh, it was released on January 30th, uh, and it displayed workers at a California slaughterhouse. Chino, for uh, all you mountain goat fans Which is out not there. Chico. Um, uh, apparently, the workers were delivering repeated electric shocks to cows who were too sick or weak to stand on their own. Um, drivers used forklifts to roll the downer cows on the ground in efforts to get them to stand up for inspection. 
<laughs> You'll be fine. Just stand up, cow. Uh, and even a veterinary version of waterboarding in which high-intensity water sprays are shot up animals' noses. Uh, all these are violations of state and federal laws, in case you didn't know, which are designed to prevent animal cruelty and to keep unhealthy animals such as those with mad cow disease out of the food supply. That would be the obvious ones. Um, moreover, the companies where these practices allegedly occurred are major suppliers of meat for the nation's school lunch programs, including in Maryland. I can't well, say anything that, about Maryland. That story is out of the, <laughs> the, out of the you Washington Post. got nothing on Maryland. <laughs> Washington Post, so they, that was their local uh, shout-out. It's very cheap to incorporate in Maryland. Um, <laughs> that was their local fear-mongering. Yep. And uh, the footage was taken by an undercover investigator for an animal welfare group, uh, which uh, apparently had nothing to do with the government's Humane Society oversight. of the United States. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. An animal welfare group uh, who wore a customized video camera under his clothes while working at the facility last year. <laughs> I want to get one of those. The investigator wa- and Wayne Passell, president of the Humane Society, said the footage was taken at Hallmark Meat Packing in Chino, California. Hallmark sells meat for processing to Westland Meat Company in Chino. Um, according to Westland President Steve Mendel... We'll be talking about in a moment. <laughs> who is also Hallmark's operations manager? Uh, in an interview, Mendel expressed disbelief that employees use stun guns to get sick or injured animals in their feet for inspection. That's impossible, he said, <laughs> misusing the word, <laughs> uh, adding that electrical prods are not allowed on the property. Um, no, not even the Hotshot, a brand name electric device. Um, <laughs> Uh, that's impossible. So ask whether his employees used forklifts to get moribund animals off the ground. He said, I can't imagine that. Use your imagination, Steve. We're going to be talking about this very soon. Whether his employees used forklifts, uh, uh, whether water was sprayed up the animals' nose to get them stand up, uh, his response was, it's absolutely not true. <laughs> uh, California law and USDA regulations do not allow disabled animals to be dragged by chains, lifted with forklifts, or with few exceptions to enter the food supply, all of which happened at Hallmark during the investigator's time there last fall. He said, one reason that regulations call for keeping downers, cows that cannot stand up out of the food supply, is that they may harbor bovine spongiform encephalopathy, also known as mad cow disease, is caused by a virus-like infection particle, infectious particle, actually it's called a prion. Abnormal protein that can cause a fatal brain disease in people. Uh, another reason that they're kept out of the food supply is because such animals have been wallowing in feces, posing added, uh, <laughs> posing added risks of E. coli and salmonella contamination. Um, wallowing. <clears throat> that's right. You might know their epidermises were in feces. <clears throat> of course, the cows themselves were also very unhappy. Uh, in the video, handlers repeatedly apply powerful shocks to the heads, necks, and spines, and rectums of immobile cows. So, anyhow, in case you hadn't heard about the video, that's the details about that. Very exciting. Yeah, and this is what brought things to a head. Um, the video was taken um, and then used as the basis of evidence for a case against the USDA by the Humane Society, and that's what's in play right now. I just wanted to put a little plug in for um, an older book by Gail Eisnitz uh, called Slaughterhouses. And just Slaughterhouse. Oh, just Slaughterhouse. Um, and that everything that, that um, we just talked about in the article and more about, um, you know, tapeworms and cows being dragged through feces and all that is all in there. And, and a lot of that was put into the uh, Skinny Bitch book, which is a new New York Times bestseller. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm just I'm just yeah. saying people might be more familiar. Yeah. But yeah, go get Slaughterhouse. 
I think Slaughterhouse is a good reference book. And I think we have Stuart Rose on the line, so let me um, introduce Stuart Rose. He's a vegetarian for more than 25 years, has made a careful study of the science behind the many benefits of a vegetarian diet, as well as its cultural and historical connections. Stuart has extensive experience in talking to the public and conducting classes on how a vegetarian diet benefits both our health and the health of the world we live in. He's the Vice President of Vegetarians of Washington, the largest regional vegetarian society in the United States, and the, one of the founding members of the Vegetarians of Washington and is responsible for much of its success. He produces the annual Seattle Veg Fest, the largest vegetarian food festival in the United States, now in its seventh year, and is also a contributor to Veg Feasting in the Pacific Northwest and the Veg Feasting Cookbook, and is the author of The Vegetarian Solution. Hi, Stuart. Are you there? I'm here. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. It's good to have you on the show. Glad to be here. We didn't realize there was uh, all the largest vegetarian stuff in the world is going on in Seattle. Well, Seattle is a hot spot for vegetarianism and veganism. Um, we think that um, we're uh, breaking some new ground as well as strengthening um, some old relationships. Are you behind the vegan donuts? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> there will be vegan donuts at, at VegFest, as a matter of fact. Oh, really? Mighty, Mighty O's will be there? Mighty O's, yes, Ryan will be there. Excellent. <laughs> lots and lots of Mighty O's. <laughs> we'll have actually over 700 different kinds of food to try. Wow. And I would say about 98% of those wow. foods are vegan. Awesome. Excellent. Uh, for a second, I thought you were going to say 700 different kinds of donuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd be getting my ticket right now. <laughs> and what's what's the date of the fest? March 29th and 30th at the Seattle Center Exhibition Hall in Seattle, Washington. It's coming up quick. Yep, from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Admission is only 5 bucks, and kids are free. Uh, nice. Damn. Don't eat breakfast and don't eat dinner the night before. <laughs> Gorge yourselves. Uh, Seattle's so well, cool. You'll walk out healthier than you walked in. No doubt. And smarter. And if, smarter. If this smarter. book is any indication, they'll, they'll know everything. <laughs> so I was, I was looking at your book a little bit, and what I liked about it is that you're coming at vegetarianism from every angle. It's like you've got spirituality in there, you've got world hunger, you've got disease, and it's, it's just it looks like a great reference because any kind of, you know, debate or discussion you're going to have with somebody, you're going to be able to back it up in just a myriad of ways. Well, yes. You know, during our work over the past seven years, we realized that different things appeal to different people. There are people that don't get the health thing, but they get the environmental aspect. And there are people that get the animal aspect, um, but they don't get the environmental aspect. And there's lots of folks who get the health aspect, but don't understand that a lot of people are coming from this from the point of view of spirituality. And so what we wanted to do was cast a broad net as possible because the case for the vegan diet is so compelling from so many different directions that we wanted to make the case broadly. And while we make the case broadly, as you point out, it's not superficial. We back up everything we say um, very, very carefully. When did you decide to write a book? Well, we've been giving classes, and that's something I wish more of the groups around the country would do, is to 
give more classes. You know, there's classes on how to do your own wiring at home, how to fix your own car, how to make your own clothes. There's not enough classes on how to become a vegan. And I wanted to mention that in the vegetarian solution, we redefine the word vegetarian to mean vegan, um, kind of taking it back to its original roots. Yeah, and there's not enough mean. classes. And we've been given classes for the past seven years. And people were always asking, oh, if it was there, is there any one place where we can get all this information? And um, there were groups of people that felt that their, in, their, their concerns and interests weren't being adequately addressed, such as seniors. Uh, pregnant moms and children, uh, people in different um, uh, walks of life, some people who um, were already sick, already had heart disease, or already had cancer, and were looking for some information to help them as well. And so we decided at the request of our members to put this book together um, from all the different kinds of information we were presenting in our class. And we're very happy at the positive reception it's, it's being given across the country. Yeah, it's really beautifully organized. Um, just to give people an idea, you've got uh, uh, the first chapter introduces uh, health, uh, the the reasons for going vegetarian. Uh, then you got a chapter on moving, uh, how to you know actually get there, uh, things you might discover along the way, uh, a little history about it, and um, in chapter three, and some common diseases to talk about in chapter four, um, and uh, then chapter five, a nice overview of global hunger and the problems of farming and uh, agriculture, and then uh, more on the environment in Chapter 6, and Chapter 7, and then uh, <laughs> Chapter 8 even gets into food and faith. <laughs> food and faith. Yeah, eight whole chapters. Um, yeah, it's a beauty. Stuart, what do you find resonates with most people that you talk to? Which one of those chapters? Well, you know, um, I think different things resonate with different people. Obviously, the health aspect of the message in you know is becomes an enlightened self-interest for many people but i've been surprised at the strength of response from the food and faith section a lot of people are either coming at it from that point of view or they want to make sure that their change in diet and lifestyle will be consistent with their other uh, religious values you know america is considered the second most religious country in the world second only to india hmm. and so um, faith-based considerations are important to many. I know my wife and I became vegans shortly after we got married. We were reading about the original diet in the Bible and the fact that the Bible says that animals have souls. Mm -hmm. Where does it really say that? That got to us. <clears throat> and so we became vegans literally at that moment. We were biblically inspired. Really? Know, the um, Bible inspired I you? I think that's Corinthians, actually. Um, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it was Genesis 129. Oh, even better. And th there's a number, <laughs> you know, all the folks from Adam and Eve down to Noah in the first before the flood were vegetarians. And Daniel in the Bible was, was a vegetarian. And, you know, the Bible gives a, an example of a, of, of, a, of a controlled study that... He and his friends who were vegetarians were healthier. We don't have a particular spiritual leaning as vegetarians of Washington ourselves. The Food and Faith discusses uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Christianity, Judaism. We have even some uh, information for different Muslim sects. We, we, we don't have any particular um, spiritual angle ourselves. We do something of a world survey um, about what different religions have to say. 
And people are surprised. You know, the founder of the Salvation Army was a vegetarian. The founder of the, of, of the Methodist Church was a vegetarian. Um, we've now had two chief rabbis of Israel who um, are vegetarians. And um, my, I myself am an Orthodox Jew. So many people are coming from this point of view. Um, that will appeal to some. And we have the other chapters, of course. Um, the majority of, of the book is, is concerned with, um, you know, other aspects. And I think the environmentalists are just now beginning to get the environmental connection, especially with the U.N. report that said, as I think you guys probably already know, that raising livestock causes more global warming than all the cars, trains, planes, ships, and boats in the world put together. I don't remember seeing that in the Al Gore movie. <laughs> I remember seeing it in the Al Gore movie, too. Another reason why we had to write this book. Yeah. When you, I, you know, I, I know that you're pretty knowledgeable and you've been doing a lot of this stuff, um, you know, your festivals and um, classes, but when you were doing research for the book, um, did anything pop out and surprise you? Any um, piece of information related? Well, you know, what was surprising is were some of the diseases, well, there were, yeah, I learned a lot and there were a number of things surprising. The global warming part was surprising to me with everybody talking about hybrid cars and all these other things, which are good things to do. Um, some of the diseases that we talk about today, um, besides heart disease and cancer, such as Alzheimer's, which has a very strong connection to meat mm -hmm. consumption, um, Parkinson's disease, uh, osteoporosis, mm. the, the strength of the connection between meat consumption and these other diseases. Um, you know, I knew that there might be some connection, but seeing how strong the connection was to these other diseases. And the other thing that I was pleasantly surprised about was to see how much longer the average vegetarian in America lives, which is 13 years. Wow. Now, 13 years is a serious chunk of time, especially to a, an aging baby boomer such as myself. <laughs> <laughs> you talk giving me 13 years, now that's serious. Yes, I think Mozart's career spanned an entire 13 years or something. That's right. <laughs> So are you, so when you say vegetarian, that, do you mean vegan or? Yeah. 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 What we did in the book is we redefined vegetarian back to its original meaning, and it was also sort of a bit of a strategy. We're looking to, as an organization, outreach to the people who are eating at McDonald's, and we gear our outreach very, very broadly because that's what we're trying to do. And do you feel like the word vegan can be intimidating to people? I, it, it's not a question of intimidating. They don't. They, in my experience, they don't know what it means. Mm. It does sound like an the, alien. There's the cutting edge, and then there's the bleeding edge. And the word vegan is so far removed from some of the people that come to VegFest, for instance. That you know, I'll tell you. Um, what, I'll tell you how I began to become interested in working on veganism publicly. I was um, in the hospital for a non-dietarily related problem, I might add. And um, when I got to the point of wanting to eat some food and they wouldn't let my wife go out to the co-op and get me some food and I had to eat, you know, they wanted me to eat the hospital food. Oh, I'll never forget the dinner they brought in. Beef stuff will kill you. <clears throat> oh. Oh, you, you know, uh, it was a baked potato, but it was smothered in butter and a chocolate cake made with eggs. 
and I wouldn't eat it. And then the next morning, they gave me some kind of an egg McMuffin, <laughs> and I wouldn't eat that either. And I'm starting to get really hungry. And the nurse comes in and, and says, Stuart, why won't you eat the food? I said, well, because I'm a vegan. You're trying to kill she me. Said, That's funny. We thought you were Jewish. so vegetarian they understand vegan they don't and so what we try to do um and you know i've been a vegan for 27 years but what we tried to do was to talk to the mainstream in a way that they could understand and if they understand the word vegetarian fine We'll, we'll 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 use the word vegetarian but the book is a very strong vegan uh, book in its recommendations and philosophy. Awesome. So it was, it was a bit of strategy, I guess. Could you tell us about the um, seven rules for changing your diet? Ah, the seven rules. Well, the first rule, and perhaps one of the most important, is never take anything out of your diet um, unless you can replace it with something even better tasting. Mm. You know, food is there to be enjoyed, and certainly at Vegetarians of Washington, we really know how to chow down. <laughs> uh, you don't want to feel that you're deprived. You don't want to feel that, um, you know, you're missing anything. So you've got to learn to cook. You've got to learn to, where you, to learn where you can eat out. You've got to get a good cookbook. Um, a good cookbook is one of the best devices I can recommend for making a change in your diet. And find food that is satisfying, scrumptious. Um, if you're eating in a, well and the food is, tastes great, you won't feel like you're missing anything. Rule number two is not to be afraid. There are people out there, you know, there's a lot of fear-mongering out there, um, especially when it comes to health. There are people out there that think that if you're even one milligram short of magnesium, your arms will fall off. That's it, no <laughs> arms. And so there's a lot of people um, out there who are afraid, um, and we try to remind them that the evidence is in on the healthfulness of the vegan diet. Um, we're not living longer because we're missing anything. And so everybody just needs to take a deep breath, get centered, and calm down. Rule number three is to keep it simple. We recommend a diet based on fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, and nuts, and that's the end of the story. As long as you're eating a reasonably varied diet with those food groups, you don't need to keep food diaries. You don't have to go through calculations. It'll be fine. Uh, rule number four is tr don't try to do it all at once. I recommend newcomers make Tuesday night veggie night. Start substituting in one night um, a week and then expand on that. And rule number five, which is very important, is don't jump to conclusions. I have a friend who wanted to switch over to a vegan diet, and he stubbed his toe really badly. And he was hopping around and this and that. <laughs> and he was actually uh, blaming it on the vegan food. Oh, I told no. him to buy a pair of slippers and be less clumsy. Um, one lady came up to me and said, well, she had caught a bad cold. And I said, well, what's going on? How were the kids and everything? She said, they all have colds, too. How about the classmates? They have colds. Well, maybe you just caught a cold. <laughs> it's amazing how when people change their diet, they become hypervigilant. The first sneeze, and oh, that's it. Um, as, if, as if eating meat will keep you from getting a cold. It's, right. You know. Number six, if you want a quick Ph.D., 
and food and nutrition, try reading all the food labels of the food <laughs> that you buy. You'd be amazed at how they sneak animal ingredients in there. It's almost a shell game with some of the things, trans fats, all kinds of things. And rule number seven uh, kind of embodies our, philo- our easygoing philosophy of Vegetarians of Washington is to be diplomatic when dealing with others. We recommend living by example, but being ready to help when asked. You know, food is a personal space. Food is what your grandmother gave you when you came home on a cold winter's afternoon. Food was um, the cake you had at your sweet 16 uh, birthday party or at your wedding. Food is anniversaries. Food is celebrations. It's a personal space. We find that people are looking for help, not criticism. And what we try to do is take an open arms approach. And even if you're eating at McDonald's every day, we're not going to give you a hard time. What we're going to do is give you a hand uh, and a leg up to a better way of life. And that's kind of the philosophy of our organization. Yeah, I mean, if you're eating at a McDonald's every day, maybe a 12-step program might be more helpful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, it's something that we're trying to do, in, you know, that's, it may be a bit bold of us to try to do this to reach the McDonald's folks. You know, um, only half the people who come to VegFest are even vegetarian, much less vegan. We are going to um, advertise very broadly in the media. We're on the front page of Northwest Baby and Child. We'll be on nine radio stations prime time, the ABC affiliate television station, um, and so on and so forth. We're really casting a broad net. We don't feel that there's anyone in the world that shouldn't be following a vegan diet. If you're young, if you're old, if you're rich, if you're poor, um, regardless what walk of life you're in, um, we feel that it's a diet for everybody, so we advertise to everybody. And we got a lot of people come in. They don't know what tofu is. They never heard of tempeh. And they don't even know what the word vegan means. But once they get in there and they taste the food and they listen to our doctors who are there and they look at the cooking demonstrations and they get by the books and the materials, you can see the change. You can see the change in them. I've had people who've been to VegFest two or three years, and they, they come up to me at the event and said, Stuart, we're fin- we've completed our change. Our whole family is vegan now. And these are folks that were were eating the standard American diet. This is kind of the goal of our outreach. Of course, we want to provide support to the vegetarian and vegan community, and we do that throughout the year. But VegFest is um, kind of our way to reach the public. You know, the case for the vegan diet, as you folks know, is so compelling. We don't want it to be America's best-kept secret. And so we engage the public very, very broadly, and this book is our attempt to do that. Stuart, for people who, say, are eating at McDonald's every day, and it's so cheap, what, mm-hmm. what do you say to those people or other people who just don't have a lot of money and they'd say, well, I'd like to be vegetarian or I'd like to be vegan, but it's too expensive. I don't have the money. Soy milk is, you know, is way more expensive than milk. And what, mm-hmm. what's your response to that? Well, that's a legitimate concern. Um, some things we recommend is joining, uh, would be, for instance, joining a food co-op or going to a natural food store and buying from the bulk bin. That can save an enormous amount of money. Um, you need to be a wise consumer. I, don't, I think the veggie burgers have, at this point, come down in price 
to the point that they're equivalent to the regular burgers. Mm-hmm. But I understand their concern. Um, you know, in the city where I live in, McDonald's is selling burgers for a buck. And that's, I know, it's outrageous. You know, and part of it's government subsidy, and part of it is economy of scale, and part of it is to sell it real cheap and make money off of the fries and the Cokes. Um, but it is a legitimate concern. I think the, the most important um, aspect of the answer is, well, from the point of view of self-interest, nothing is more expensive than getting sick in this country. Um, even with health insurance, um, the bills really add up, and it will overwhelm any savings that you had in eating at McDonald's. And the second thing is to kind of look at, as, um, at thinking um, at a vegan diet as a form of charity. You know, it's not just something we do for ourselves. Instead of, you know, or in addition or, or sort of in the same vein of giving money to the Humane Society, if you buy a, a vegan dinner, you know, you just save the life of an animal. If you buy a vegan dinner, you just help free up food to feed someone starving in Asia or Latin America for that point, or Africa from that ma- for that matter. So it is an act of charity. Uh, following a vegan diet, yes, you get good health, and good health is, is really priceless. But I like to think of it as an act of giving, giving to the, to the planet and giving to the anim- other animals and people who live on it. And giving does cost money, but, you know, America is also the most charitable country in the world. I have to say well, it too. I think of it is a form of charity. Yeah, I have to. I have to um, say it from my from my point of view. It seems like um, whenever I spend a little extra, I feel I'm investing, and I think that in my own health and also, of course, in the welfare of animals. But the result is also, uh, I think, for me, uh, somewhat of in- increased clarity, increased uh, prosperity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not as if I'm, you know, losing in the in the. <laughs> I do, did you, I do. Well, let me ask you, did you feel better about yourself when you became vegan? Did you feel good about yourself? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I had felt uh, being a lazy vegetarian and occasionally, uh, you know, eating meat with out of concern for things like uh, not getting enough B12 and iron and stuff. Um, once I started, you know, being responsible about it, about it and supplementing and doing the extra work that's required, uh, I couldn't have been happier with myself. <laughs> <laughs> if I would have added anything to the book, if I would have had the space, I think I would have talked a little bit about people who made the change and how happy they are. Most of the people I speak to, you know, they feel better about themselves and their lifestyle. They feel like they're living more consistently with their values. Um, they feel that they're, uh, you know, it's a good feeling inside. And I, I, if I could have added anything to the book, I think it would have been that. Yep. How about everybody else? Did everybody else there feel good about the switch? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Still going strong. 12 years. <laughs> 12 years. Good. Yep. And um, how popular um, is veganism in your neck of the woods? I'd say it's pretty popular, accessible in this area, in, yeah. in Northampton especially, even more so than Boston. I feel like we have a lot of... We have vegetarian restaurants um, in a community of only 30,000 people. We've got two or three vegetarian restaurants, and every restaurant around here has some kind of vegan or vegetarian option, at m- mostly. Yeah, I think we have a really good percentage of vegetarians and vegans. Um, not as strong on the activism front, I don't think. but That's mm-hmm. true. 
but um but a lot of a lot of food options <laughs> a lot of foodies yeah <laughs> you know i think people are also becoming more conscious of the animal issue you know there've been some horrendous videos released lately and i think it's starting to grab the public in a poll that we included in the book two thirds of americans felt that animals animals and their rights and welfare were not ad- being adequately addressed I think that when most, you know, the, the old saying is, um, if slaughterhouses had glass walls, we'd all be vegetarians. Yep. And there was a few doctors who, who added to that and said, if your arteries had glass walls, we'd all be vegetarians. <laughs> and That's I guess a it's one. a win-win situation. You know, there's some people think that, well, you know, they, they feel bad about the animals, but they feel like it's them or us. But the real message is that, What's good for the animals is what's good for us. Everybody wins. It's not us or them. Yep. It's what a vegan diet is good for us and them. And we try to make that point as strongly as we can whenever we give classes or whenever we produce materials. It's a win-win situation. Too many people think that their interests are opposed to the animals. And, you know, sorry, but the animals have to lose. Actually, our interests are in line with the animals. What's better for us is better for them. And what's better and what's better for the planet and the environment is also what's better for them. So we try to present this as a win-win proposition. Everybody wins with a vegan diet. We don't, as far as we can see, you know, other than McDonald's and some parts of the meat industry, there doesn't seem to be any losers. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> well, McDonald's definitely are a bunch of losers. And, uh, yeah, I think South, America, <laughs> South America's losing pretty badly right now. Oh, well, you mean in general, uh, in terms of vegetarianism, right, of course. Uh, um, well, I was going to say, you know, like, if everybody in the world went vegetarian, like, <laughs> would that even be enough to reverse the uh, the damage we've caused at this point? Uh, well, that's a legitimate question. Um, I guess I have two perspectives on the answer. One is, just because we can't do everything, does that mean we should do nothing? You know, it's kind of, you know, going back to the charity model, if somebody needs money and there's five people out there that need money and you can only afford to help one of them, does that mean you should help no one because you can't help everyone? And I think people need to do what they can and hope that it all adds up. The other thing, um, aspect to the problem is no, vegetarianism or veganism is not the solution to all the world's ills. There'll still be all kinds of problems that have plagued mankind from, you know, from the earliest years, war and strife and all kinds of things. But I've got to tell you, it, it, as, as, as a lifestyle issue, I don't think there's any other single thing a person can do to improve their lives and, and the lives of the other people in the world that's more powerful than the adoption of a vegan diet. If there's something that has more, um, if you'll excuse the, the expression, more bang for the buck, I'd like to know what it is. Because I don't know what else a person can do with their own lives that can help starving people, a polluted planet. Um, I, what is it? Um, uh, 22 billion, billion with a B, farm animals living in misery mm-hmm. and add a, and add 13 years to their life if if there's any other lifestyle change that's that powerful somebody please tell me about it well, on that note Stuart, we have another guest on the second half of the show so we're going to have to cut it short here but it's been a 
real honor to have you on the show, and we hope your book does really well, and we'll be promoting it to other people for you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. If anybody wants more information about The Vegetarian Solution, they can visit www.thevegetariansolution.com. All right, and we'll put that in our show notes. And good luck with your festival in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much. Thanks, Stuart. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Listening to Vegan Radio on WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, also broadcasting on the Pacifica Radio Network. And we have Dr. Michael Greger from the Humane Society on. You there, Michael? Yes, thank you for having me on. Hey. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. So there's been big things happening with the Humane Society lately. Absolutely. The largest meat recall in human history. Wow. You must be pretty proud of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so could you give our listeners a little lead-up to how this all happened? Sure. Um, uh, we have a uh, crack team of about a dozen investigators in our department who have investigated everything from puppy mills to dogfighting rings to uh, um, uh, you know Philippine dog-eating operations to uh, you know uh, fur farms. This was their first, um, actually their second factory farming, their first slaughterhouse investigation. Um, uh, they had previously done a uh, a battery cage facility um, that uh, that supplied Ben and Jerry's, which we used that uh, footage to leverage Ben and Jerry's to get battery cage eggs out of their ice cream. But this one was our first slaughter plant investigation. It was a dairy cow slaughter plant in Southern California. Um, and also, which we didn't know at the time, but turned out to be the second largest provider of the National School Lunch Program, won the USDA's or the National School Lunch Program's kind of you know, provider of the year, 2004-2005, and had a long history, going back over 10 years, of, uh, of uh, animal abuse allegations. And so um, our investigator was there for six weeks with um, a series of hidden cameras, which continued to get busted because of the physical uh, requirements of that kind of work. He was a pen worker um, trying to uh, corral these frightened, weak, often sick or lame animals into the kill box for slaughter for America's school children. Wow. Did you have any reason for picking out this slaughterhouse among the many around the country? It was really basically done at random. Our, that particular investigator 
who uh, needs to remain confidential, um, anonymous, um, just because uh, he fears retaliation. Right. Um, but uh, but he happened to be there in um, uh, in I believe Alameda County in the Chino area on another on a completely separate investigation. He was kind of waiting for a break in that investigation while he was waiting. Just uh, you know had a list of USDA inspected slaughter plants. And that one was literally just the closest one to where he was. And so he went there, he applied, got the job. And uh, now, uh, a few months later, we, uh, you know, we've, we're, we've, we've, it's really shaken the faith of policymakers and the American public in the regulatory apparatus that is set up to provide, to guarantee us um, a, a degree of safety in our food supply. And now there are a number of kind of important bills before Congress to, among other things, you know, create a unified, independent food safety authority, take the meat inspections away from USDA, which has a conflict of interest. I mean, their mandate is to promote agricultural products. At the same time, they're the ones we put in charge of protecting America's health when it comes to these kind of meat products. And so taking food safety authority away from USDA and placing it, for example, the Department of Health and Human Services, where it should be, where the CDC is, um, and uh, have it run by food safety experts, by you know public health experts, not by people embedded in the agriculture industry. That would make sense. I have to say, you know, <laughs> looking at this story and following it over the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, the the USDA comes across as being a bit of a junta. <laughs> They're using their lawyers to sort of bully the HSUS. They're trying to paint you as an activist. Uh, and the uh, U.S. Um, Humane Society as an activist organization, uh, and they're doing a fairly good job of it, I must say. <laughs> uh, it's it's coming across as being a, a, a real kind of, uh, they're trying to really make it a, a battle of ideology, it seems like. And yeah, we've got a lot of this kind of kill the messenger type messages. I mean, but bottom line, I mean, they're the ones whose job it is to inspect these facilities. They had five full-time inspectors. Why did it take a private charity to walk in with a video camera to document what was going on before, you know, I mean, this was their job. They were obviously kind of caught with their pants down. And uh, and so, uh, and so we, you know, it's understandable that they'd be defensive since we showed in the single random investigation just how utterly, um, uh, you know, unregulated this industry is. Um, and so, you know, you can see all these kind of, deflective attacks mm -hmm. but uh, it really you know doesn't uh, hasn't deflected too much away from the real core issues here and that is you know how we treat animals that we kill for food it seems like the media coverage is more um, focused on the the possibility that um, meat with mad cow disease has got into the food system rather than the humane aspects of the the whole situation well certainly i mean but they go together i mean they, you know how we treat animals can have you know human health implications for things like you know bird flu or something you know uh, how we treat animals can have global public health implications this um you know these animals that are sick that are down um uh you know they're obviously humane uh, handling issues. I mean, how do you take a thousand-pound cow who can't move, essentially, um, and get her to slaughter? Well, you use chains, you use 
um, forklifts, bulldozers, these kind of really just horrific methods. Um, and uh, rather than being humanely euthanized on the spot as a veterinary emergency, which it is. Um, unfortunately, these, I mean, that you, you're right, I mean, it's the, the kind of, the, the focus has kind of moved away from that. But at the same time, these animals uh, may indeed be sick with pathogens that can cause foodborne illnesses. Not only mad cow disease, uh, which being down, non-ambulatory, is one of the, potentially one of the symptoms of the disease, but through the very fact that these animals are lying, essentially wallowing in their own manure, it increases the risk of uh, of conventional foodborne pathogens, which you know affect tens of thousands of people a year. You know, Salmonella, E. coli. Um, a USDA-funded study in 2003 showed that these that downer dairy cows are three times more likely to harbor the potentially deadly E. coli 0157H7 strain than walking coal dairy cows. So these cows can be sick. You can't often tell from animal that is down whether the animal is just injured or injured and sick or just sick. These animals should not be allowed in the food supply period for both humane handling reasons and for human health reasons. Is there any word on um, how much uh, actual inspection or testing for BSE there is now? Um, we test about uh, 1 in 2,500 animals. Um, uh, uh, in Europe, they test about one out of every four. In Japan, they test every single animal um, slaughtered for human consumption. The USDA has dramatically scaled back their um, BSE, or bovine spongiform cephalopathy, mad cow disease surveillance system, and in fact, have even attacked a um, a uh, Kansas uh, Creekstone Farms, a Kansas processor that was trying to test their own cows. Say, fine, you're not going to test. We have export clients. We have Japan, Korea, and they want to know that our that the cows that we're slaughtering for them do not have mad cow disease, and the USDA wouldn't let them test, barred them from testing their own animals at their own expense. So I think it gives you a sense of kind of the, you know, kind of don't look, don't tell policy of the USDA when it comes to. Um, this disease. Yeah, I noticed that uh, Ed Schaefer, who's the Agriculture Secretary, was uh, basically saying, no, I don't think an outright ban on downer cows would be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we should definitely do it on a case-by-case -case basis. And um, I mean, it seems a little, a little crazy. I mean, shouldn't we err on the side of caution here? Well, I think it's really shocking to the American public to learn that in this day and age, Animals that are too sick to cripple to even walk are, you know, entering the human food supply. And the fact that uh, that even after this, I mean, what more would it take? 130 million pounds recalled, um, you know, the slaughter plant going out of business, um, the tremendous blow that uh, consumer, that, uh, you know, regulatory apparatus had in terms of consumer trust. After all that, the USDA still says that some down animals should be allowed to be slaughtered for human consumption. It just doesn't make sense, even from kind of an industry standpoint. Why? Um, I mean, there may only be a half million downer cattle every year compared to, you know, 34 million that we slaughter. I mean, uh, uh, you know, why would the industry, you know, kind of nickel and dime this when, you know, uh, you'd think it would be in their best short and long-term interest to to put a kind of a bright line ban, a no downers, no exceptions ban 
in our food supply. So where, uh, yeah, I'd like to ask him that question too, but apparently Steve Mendel <laughs> isn't showing up for these uh, hearings. Well, was there yesterday, so oh. under court order, subpoena. They, um, <laughs> I missed that one. <laughs> the, um, the, uh, in fact, the head of the committee said, you know, we're going to get the truth whether we have to you know, force you to show up or not. And indeed, um, he, I, was, um, I, uh, I was at the hearing that he, wasn't, that he skipped out on. <laughs> um, and, uh, He's avoiding you, man. And uh, and uh, but they got him under oath yesterday. In fact, um, you could the uh, it was webcast, and and presumably they have it archived. Very very fascinating. They grilled this guy as to what's going on. In his written testimony, he said, which was under oath, that um, none of these animals were um, allowed into the human food supply, and that these animals were just being dragged and you know forklifted etc to be euthanized they were being oh moved which, which makes no sense if you're going to euthanize them you just euthanize them right there you don't drag them with a chain to euthanize them I mean, it's the most <laughs> it was the most ridiculous thing and so we actually provided additional footage video evidence which has been available on our website for weeks showing the animal down being essentially forced to crawl on her knees um, uh, up the kill chute, um, she goes down. They're trying to shock her, you know, pull her up by the tail, but she's not moving anywhere. So they they put a chain around her neck and they drag her into the um, into what they call the kill boxes, which is where they're kind of you know exsanguinated and uh, bled to death for for slaughter. And so they showed that footage right in the <laughs> right during the hearing, um, and uh, and which which directly contradicted his testimony under oath. And when challenged on it, he, um, he claims that uh, he was not provided with the video, to which the chair of the committee said, it's been on the Internet for weeks. <laughs> how, how, like, how could you? It's your own company. <laughs> you know, it's a $100 million company. And, and what, no one emailed it to him? I mean, it's up on YouTube. It's everywhere. Um, and so, and so that certainly did not cozy him up to the, to the, uh, to the uh, House subcommittee. Um, but, uh, but so, so, so it, it's a very kind of fascinating back and forth. Yeah, I can imagine he must have a lot of oaths to try and keep. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, what's next? Well, I mean, that investigator is already on another investigation. We'll continue to do them. Um, certainly, um, we're fighting very hard in that state, particularly California, for a ballot initiative coming in November, truly landmark initiative. We already have more than enough signatures to get it on the ballot, and now it's the big fight. Um, this bill will, for the first time ever, ban in the state of California, a huge agriculture state, all veal crates, gestation crates for pregnant pigs, and battery cages for egg-laying hens. And uh, they're a big egg-producing state. It would have a tremendous um, impact. In, f in fact, uh, you can read in kind of the egg industry trade magazines, seeing what happened over in Europe when these similar kind of bans went into effect, egg consumption dramatically dropped across the board, and they're, consider and they're, they're concerned that the same thing will happen here. As eggs get more expensive, people move on to healthier foods. So people like us who are not in California, what, what should we be doing? Well, you uh, call all your California friends, 
I mean, it's really, I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, everyone's talking about the kind of race for the Democratic nominee, but this is going to be just as exciting. The um, the Pork Producers Association, the the, uh, Egg Board are funneling millions of dollars into this fight. Um, and uh, and uh, they're going to you know mount the kind of you know uh, you know uh, campaign that they have in Florida where they lost in Arizona when they lost when you put before the American public you know when you just show what goes on when there's a little transparency um, uh, and 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 shown what happens to the animals um, that uh, are processed for human food people won't stand for it they demand. Um, in the very least, the animals raised for, uh, you know, flesh, eggs, and milk um, be treated with just, uh, I mean, at least a modicum of decency, at least some of these just egregiously cruel methods of confinement that have um, been outlawed, I mean, that are being phased out in the European Union, not be allowed to continue. Um, and so um, so it's going to be a very exciting fight to watch. One can, people can... Um, certainly support the fight, uh, which is being spearheaded by the Humane Society of the U.S. Um, uh, and uh, and uh, when we win in California, maybe we'll move to a state near you. Awesome. <laughs> uh, one of the big criticisms I hear from a lot of the critics of HSUS and Farm Sanctuary and other groups is that you're you're not merely trying to um, to make conditions better for the animals. You're just trying to end animal agriculture as your ultimate goal. Do you have anything to say to that? Our focus has really been on, on banning the, 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 the absolute kind of cruelest ends of the spectrum. You, we start, it's kind of the low-hanging fruit argument. It's like, you know, you look at this just sea of cruelty. Uh, these, the slaughter statistics were just released March 3rd, every March 3rd. USDA releases their annual slaughter statistics, and the number of animals we killed for um, food rose, unfortunately, 0.8% to 9.4 billion animals every year. And in that just overwhelming um, uh, statistic, you know, one one has to sit down and say, how can we reduce? This is not going to, this, this uh, you know, this, 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 this factory farming system is not going to end overnight. So what can we do to reduce the most suffering in the shortest amount of time with the limited resources we all have? And so when, uh, I mean, it's hard to imagine, for example, a more cruel um, uh, thing than confining a battery hen to live literally within the living space of a, less than a sheet of paper for their entire lives, which can last months, which can last years, um, not able to spread her wings, not able—I mean, this is just kind of a perversion of, of you know, how these animals would live naturally. And so, you know, we start with something like that, which could affect millions, almost immediately, affect the lives of millions of animals. We've been very successful using this tactic. Um, we're going to continue to really strike at the most egregious forms of cruelty, and when they're all gone, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll go to the next lowest hanging fruit um, and uh, continue. Uh, we do not, uh, we do have a goal of entering factory farming, um, not only here, but around the world. Well, Michael, thanks so much for coming on and talking about this, um, and uh, I hope that 
ballot initiative goes through in California, that'll be amazing. Do you have any last words for our listeners? I just encourage people to one who want to know more about our work can visit us at farmanimalwelfare.org. We have a lot of our research papers, um, some of which I've contributed to, um, or the broader site, which we we uh, certainly defend all animals, particularly with the seal hunt, for example, coming up at humanesociety.org. Excellent. Well, I'm sure we'll have you on again sometime soon. And in the meantime, keep up the good fight. Looking forward to it. Thanks, All right. Michael. Thank All you. right, thank you. Bye. Bye, bye. All right. Excellent. That's some uh, some real work needs to be done. It's always it's always good having Michael on the show. <sighs> and in our next hour. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, yes, we're coming to a close, and uh, this coming is a great to way close. to end on a, on our down with our down our downer music. Yeah. Um, to remind people of uh, the voices of the unheard. The voices of the voiceless. You guys are getting very Sorry, very, well, very philosophic over Well, here. you know, you can't help but get a little bit uh, choked up when you hear um, We did have stuff. the story today also of uh, Captain Paul Watson of the Sea Shepherd getting shot by the Japanese whalers. Yeah, we should mention he's all right. He got shot, but uh, he was wearing a Kevlar vest, so he, he pulled a Charlotte. And he, uh, he also had some kind of uh, metal or something on under the vest. Oh, yes, he had his badge, or um, what was it? A uh, Badge of courage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's wearing his badge, of, his anti-poaching badge. Uh, and the, so seal, the, uh, the Sea Shepherd um, team is getting ready to go up to the uh, fight against the sealers again up in Canada. Mm. Maybe we'll cover that on our next show. Right. Now, this was actually the Japanese Coast Guard who were throwing grenades and shooting at them yep. Uh, yep. as they were pursuing the Nishin Maru you might know about. So. But the Japanese whaling season is almost over, and the Canadian seal clubbing season is about to begin. So we'll be covering that on our next show. And in the meantime, listeners, rock on. Yeah, what Keep he up said. the good fight. <laughs> and if you guys want to... Um, Look at more atrocities towards animals. You could always download the DVD of Earthlings on your computer. Oh, wow. <laughs> I thought I'd give it a little plug. Why not? Yeah. Earthlings. Joaquin does a great job of breaking it all down. And you get to, yeah, you get to listen to Joaquin Phoenix. Come on. Doesn't get any better. Yep. All right. And that's it for today's show. Tune in next time. You're listening to WXOJ LP Northampton, 103.3 FM on the Pacifica Radio Network. Go vegan. I love you guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh.